Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, uh, well, it's my joy today to be on the phone with Professor Christopher Bache. Christopher Bache has been a professor of religious studies at Youngstown State University for almost 35 years as well as an intermittent adjunct faculty member at the California Institute for Integral Studies. From 2000 to 2002, he was Director of Transformative Learning at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He is an award-winning teacher, an international speaker, and author of The Living Classroom, Dark Night, Early Dawn, and Life Cycles. Chris's work explores the deeper dimensions of human psychology, including collective consciousness, reincarnation theory, and philosophical implications of transpersonal states of awareness. He has a degree from the University of Notre Dame, Cambridge University, and Brown University. Very much welcome, Chris. And hi, Joanna. Hi. It's want... very good to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I want to ask you, what is it that gives you joy today? Uh, what gives me joy today? Today, today, just, just today, today. today, right now. Today, today, what's giving me joy right now is uh, a wonderful, beautiful uh, weather in the sunny sky and cloudy skies and uh, and trees growing outside my uh, window and the opportunity to share ideas with you. That's what's giving me joy today. Beautiful. So, Chris, it's been 14 years since you uh, wrote this book that, uh, uh, to me, is absolutely, absolutely beautiful and amazing as a tool for consciousness. This book, Dark Night, Early Dawn. And um, what I want to say about the book is that the more I read it, the more I realize that, well, we have been together on some of the same shores of of uh, journeying of discovery of exploring and you have been given the capacity to speak words to things that um, I experienced in my journeys sort of like being the indigenous person on the uh, on the shore who actually saw the big 
boat and was able to describe it. So you were teaching from your book uh, a short while back in California, and I I I was teaching a a graduate seminar on dark and early dawn at uh, the California Institute of Integral Study. Yeah, and so I wanted to ask you: um, Did you find that uh, your students could? could understand, could really feel and think from the book? Uh, we had a wonderful collection of students who gathered uh, for this course, Joanna. We had about 10 students uh, who were taking the course for credit and almost as many as that who were uh, joining the course who had already graduated from the program. So there was a, a strong interest in the subject matter. Uh, the students, many of the students have had their own uh, history with psychedelics and their own history entering into non-ordinary states. Uh, so we just, and in terms of the, the fundamental themes of Dark Night, Early Dawn, the, the emphasis of the collective unconscious, the collective psyche, the interconnectedness of mind at the deep level so that all our spiritual practices are, are touching each other at these very deep collective levels, they were very receptive to these ideas. We just had a marvelous discussion that went on for two weeks. So I'm going to go directly to a passage that's important to me. And you say, there is a social awakening coming, a time when we will have dropped our attempt to live in the atomized cells of our historical past and will have appropriated the truth of our inclusive nature. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's more to that paragraph. Uh, then you say, how can the entire species be awakened? What would it take for the whole of humanity to make this quantum jump in awareness? I have not seen how it would be accomplished. Have mm-hmm. Has this horizon, this event horizon, opened in a greater way uh, for you since the publication? It, well, it has. And actually, later in the book, uh, in the chapter called The Great Awakening, yeah. there is a kind of a, a, a sequence to that, so that at the time in the passage that you're reading, at the early part of that chapter... I had not, as, as of that time, this is, I think if I remember, it was up, up to around session 42. After, so after 42 uh, high-dose LSD sessions, and of course anybody who knows my work knows that's the context out of which all this flows, I, I had seen the arising in history of this new consciousness and the arising of a, a shift in the fundamental paradigm, of the, the fundamental collective psyche. But I had not seen how this shift was going to be accomplished. I only saw it as the underlying evolutionary press of history. And then about uh, well, two, three years later, I went through a particular experience which gave me some deeper insight into the dynamics of how this might take place. 
Now, when I say that, I don't mean to suggest that I have any insights into the outer world dynamics of how this will occur, or what's going to happen in the world, or anything like that. I don't, I don't, I haven't tracked or been exposed to any privileged information in that way. But my focus has been on the soul mm-hmm. and how this transformative process will be bubbling up, not just in the outer political arena, but how it will be bubbling up inside the very center of our consciousness, inside the very center of our psyche. And uh, so that's been my, my historical focus. And then even in the years following Dark Matter Early Dawn, I mean, Dark Matter Early Dawn covers a period of work in my life of the first 10 years, approximately, of a 20-year journey into non-ordinary states mediated by psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And so I deliberately didn't try to tell the whole story of that journey in Dark and Early Dawn. So there are still uh, layers of experience that flowed in the following 10 years, which had actually taken place when Dark Knight was written, but I didn't write about it. And I'm beginning to write about those experiences now and to put them into the larger context in the book that I'm working on now uh, called uh, Stealing Diamonds from Heaven. Wow. Which will begin about four years before Dark Knight Early Dawn, cover some of the same time period, and then we'll continue for the 10 years of journey after Dark Matter Early Dawn. So, and all of this work kind of went from 1979 to 1999. So I've been incubating and kind of living with the ramifications of and trying to understand that entire 20-year journey in the 14 years since it ended, or the 15 years since it ended. Exactly. You actually say somewhere in the book that... uh, 20 years of experience and 20 years of integration. Yeah, it's a long process. These experiences are life-changing, and they are a long process to absorb them and to integrate them at all the levels. And I think in some ways, I think we can go into processes so deep that it literally will take lifetimes to absorb them. Uh, so it's not something necessarily that I would expect to finish even in this lifetime. Well, that's very, very good to know. And also, I um, wanted to ask you, could you speak about your process of integration? I think that would be useful to a lot of people, including myself. Well, uh, it's nothing fancy and nothing exotic. A lot of it <laughs> has to do with... Um, just living, you know, just trying to live grounded and to live uh, as purposeful and meaningful a life as we can. I kind of hesitate to go too much into specifics Mm -hmm. here because I don't want to suggest that it's been easier, so it's been an all, all, uh, you know, to say, well, I'm integrating this or that experience makes it sound like, oh, it's not a big deal, we can do it. But actually, in some ways, uh, there have been long periods of years when 
very, very difficult for me in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult partly because when you take in so much beauty and see and experience and are absorbed into so much of the depth of the divine, but are not able to sustain that as some great holy people can do, it makes it very difficult to live within the confines of the ordinary physical mind. And so it's a matter of kind of working from both ends. It's working from the deep end and then also working from the, the daily end, the end of daily practice, daily service, you know, daily living. Yes, I, what I experienced um, very, uh, very often when I uh, had these non-ordinary is when I was in these states, as mm-hmm. uh, a sense of coming home, a very, very, very deep sense of home. Yeah. And then, of course, um, there's for me at least there's a certain homesickness mm-hmm. in everyday life. Uh, tasting this, I often ask in my interviews to people, um, "What is what is love to you?" Uh, mm-hmm. Because I feel I've tasted a, a degree of love that's that's indescribable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the love behind existence, you know, the love behind existence itself is is shattering to touch and marks you for life and uh how do you how do you live up to a love like that i mean how do you live that's an, an expression right? yes of, of a love like that yeah that love yeah yeah and and i it's i just uh I just remember the sense of confirmation and utter surprise because in in daily life my psychological makeup was so painful mm-hmm. and yet uh it was absolutely shown and specified to me that uh the fiber the fiber of the universe is a love beyond anything anything I could ever describe. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it, to, to open up to it, and in this case, to open up to our moment in history, because our moment of history is soaked with pain, and it's going to be soaked with more pain in the 21st century as it unfolds. And to, to experience even this, to experience the evolutionary global systems crisis that we're entering into, even this, is it or is it not an expression of the love of the universe or the intelligence of the universe? So I think so much as we enter into this crisis time, so much hinges on the context within which we understand it. And if we think of the universe as a blind machine driven by chance, and uh, evolutionary necessity, then I think we'll have a very low estimate. But if we think of the universe as uh, a manifestation of living intelligence, of, of cosmic proportions, then 
it opens up the possibility to uh, reframing our understanding of the of our critical time in history. Uh, and that, that, I think, is one of the great advantages of working very deeply uh, in non-ordinary states, because sometimes these states open us up to very expanded time horizons. I mean, instead of being caught in a present moment of time, one can open up to time horizons of millions or billions of years, and when one shifts to an expanded time frame of even 100,000 years, it often radically reframes our entire understanding of what being a human being is about because it gives us a larger context, an experiential context of what it's about. I think we are, we have so historically, and it's understandable, we couldn't help but do it, but we have so <laughs> underestimated the nature of God, and we have so underestimated the, the intention of the divine <sighs> in the act of creation. We have to radically expand into new horizons to appreciate the intelligence and love that has been folded into the creative process and folded into human beings. And when we open to that level of intimacy and reopen to that level of intimacy with the universe, then it, it recontextualizes our sense of the hour that we are in, what we can do, what we should be doing. So, Chris, speaking of stories, mm-hmm. tell us a story of your intimacy with God, the universe, the creative, and how it's evolving in you, if you wish. Ah, well, Mm. I have to think about that one for a little bit. Take your Uh, time. in my department, philosophy mm-hmm. and religious studies, since many of my good friends are atheists and well-educated atheists, you know. And I joke with them that, that one of the ways of quickly summarizing the difference between their philosophy and my philosophy is I'm looking forward to dying, and they're not. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm looking forward to dying is because of because of 73 days in which, at least during a large number of those days, I was drawn into deep intimacy with something so large and so overwhelmingly intelligent and compassionate, vast beyond dimensions, that I could only think of it in terms of God, but not God like anything like the images that we associate with theism, but the divine, this extraordinary reality. And it helped me, you know, it's helping me wake up inside the physical world, but it also gave me a sense uh, of homecoming, as you say, 
of the homecoming, where, where we come from, through, back and forth, again and again. And because of that experience of the luminosity of the reality that is the, the womb out of which time and space emerges, I look forward to dying. I look forward to being home again. Mm-hmm. Even though I know, I know at many levels, I'm home on Earth, too. Earth is my home. And that nirvana is samsara. And when we wake up completely, heaven is right here. But for me, that hasn't maybe matured fully or sufficiently, and I still, there is still a uh, a gap between what I have known in my peak experiences and what I can know in my sustained daily experience. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to dying because I look forward to returning to that reality. Uh, I, I so wish uh, you could describe your, your after death. <laughs> I wish you could write, you would be able to write a book about your after death. That would be so good. Well, you know, I don't have any, I don't have any exhaustive knowledge or thesis or, you know, a particular model of it. I have bits and pieces that I've gathered as much from research as I have from experiences, you know, the the work that's being done in near-death episode research and Michael Newton's work and life between life therapy and all the many fine people working in deep hypnotic states, uh, regressing to former lives and mm-hmm. then to the Bardo between lives. Yes, yes. We're, we're getting a lot of bits and pieces. Uh, again, particularly Michael Newton's work, giving us a, a pretty coherent vision of it. Uh, and. And my my personal experience doesn't add content in so much. It just adds uh, the experience of the reality of that world and the um, the love saturated nature of that world and the wisdom saturated nature, um, the compassion of that world. Um, and. I guess I would describe it, too, in terms of clarity, just clarity, an unspeakably crystalline, luminous, diamond clarity, just to be conscious is sufficient. Beautiful. Moving into coherent consciousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you say it takes a strong individuality to transcend the ego. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 you say this beautiful thing about God or the creative, you say that it believes, go and create my children. Mm. So the relationship between creativity, individuality, and transcending the ego. 
you're asking big, complex questions. <laughs> 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 okay, what time? Easy questions lying on that on that sheet. <laughs> well, what time do you have dinner, and what are you going to have for dinner? <laughs> What's your zip code? <laughs> okay. Give it to me. Give it to me again, so I can. Okay, practice. peace, Mike. Peace. Um, I'd like you to speak about uh, individuality, really, and uh, how having a strong individuality can be useful in transcending the ego. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's been kind of a a truism in the transpersonal circles that you have to have an ego to lose an ego. Mm-hmm. You know, to give it up. And the, the basic vision in a lot of this, you know, Eastern-oriented spiritual traditions is, is you, the ego is the obstacle, the ego is the enemy, the ego, ego holds you separate from the world, so when you explode ego, you merge into the totality, and that when you die, you merge even deeper into the totality, but you are reabsorbed and drop into the ocean. All individuality is an illusion. All separation is an illusion. Oneness is the ultimate truth. We return uh, into oneness. And um, I really respect that tradition, and I understand the, the truth in that tradition, but it, it's not a system that I share exactly. Uh, because I think that the universe, the universe is actually in the act of creating the physical universe and creating physical reality and creating uh, our species is in the process of giving birth to an individuality that truly does a, a survive the reunion with source consciousness. I think that basically... On, at earlier stages of human evolution, if a human being were to actually experience the divine, it would just shatter them, shatter their mind so completely, and they would enter into what, what sometimes is called a divine forgetfulness. They would know they had an ecstatic experience, but they mm-hmm. wouldn't know what the experience is. Uh-huh. But, yes. but I, I think what evolution is doing and what what is unfolding in the evolutionary process is that life is sculpting human beings who through lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, experiencing death, rebirth, death, rebirth, death, rebirth, eventually, it truly, it does, the ego does pop as the working identity, you know, because that's the hundred-year identity. That ego does pop, but, but in deep, deep spiritual practice, when that ego pops, actually a deeper form of individuality eventually emerges. Not an individuality of separation, Mm. but an individuality of communion that's actually nourished in communion and a trans-egoic individuality. And this, I think, is a sign, a symptom of something that happens when the soul of all these many lives, when the soul reaches a certain point in its developmental history, that all of those lives fuse into a deeper, more complete entity. Mm-hmm. And this I call the, the birth of the diamond soul. Mm-hmm. You know, the birth of the diamond soul. And uh, so I think the universe, 
hasn't invested 13.7 billion years in creating a species, forming a species, which when it first wakes up and discovers that the entire world is divine and they are divine too, that it just snuffs out all that work, all those billions of years of evolution in uh, extinction. I think the deeper process is to understand that the universe is kind of, is a diamond maker. The universe is making diamonds mm -hmm. because you have to be very, very strong to withstand the impact of reunion with the intensity of the mother's love. The intensity of her heart, mm -hmm. the intensity of her mind is so powerful that unless you are deeply, deeply aligned and strong, it just shatters you completely. You know, we're in psychedelic experiences sometimes, sometimes we get overwhelmed with the truth that's just so intense it shatters us. But when we can stay completely attuned and aligned and focused, and when our energy is really strong and clear, we can absorb enormous truths of great magnitude and great intensity. I think something like that is happening in the larger historical story. What we could experience when we were simply egos is only a fraction of what we can experience when we are fully incarnated souls. So and I think we are in a time in history which is, has such dire consequences because, right. you know, our world is a world that's been built by the ego and we can't afford it. It's destroying us. Right. And we need to give birth to a world designed by souls. And so I think that there is, in this geophysical global crisis, that in some ways is an incubator for what is a, a deeper underlying story than simply the crisis of industrial culture. The crisis of industrial culture is a powerful story. But at a deeper evolutionary level, I think the story is the story of evolution, reincarnation, and the emergence of a deeper soul consciousness in history. We have to grow up. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that means, I think, in some ways, that like we have to grow up from being egos to being souls on this planet. Mm -hmm. We have to wake up. This is what um, why also I was mentioning creativity mm -hmm. and the phrase "Go and create, my children." Uh, yeah, because yeah, I came yeah. in a particular session about uh, halfway through the entire uh, seventy-three sessions, and it was it was one of these kind of breakthrough sessions that lifts you up and shows you a larger horizon and then you go in to do more work but in this larger horizon in this session of return of, of returning home there was a phase of returning in with in deep intimacy with some force that i associate with the creator with the creator with the being basically kind of under the arm of God, so to speak. And I felt this deity release humanity into the physical world, you know, mm -hmm. a seed popping up from the physical world, releasing it, knowing completely 
capacity to choose, it would create great suffering because I had, you know, I had come through layers and layers of great suffering in the bardo, knowing it would produce suffering, but trusting that it would learn and it would also produce great joy. And in the experiencing of karma and the consequences of its choosing and rechoosing and learning and, and, and becoming more, it would eventually become fully conscious and create heaven on earth. Right. So I think creativity is our nature. Yes. Because our nature is divine. Creativity is in our nature, and reincarnation is actually part of learning how creativity works, learning how to control and discipline the powers of that creativity. So I, I think there will come a time when our minds will have much, much greater control of our body. Mm-hmm. And that's harnessing the power of our innate creativity. You know, Sri Aurobindo thought that human beings had the potential to live forever. Yes. They got sufficiently strong. Yes, yes. But he said it would take 300 years of continuous spiritual practice to reach that level. Yes, to, That's about harnessing our innate potential for creativity. To become a superhuman, yes. Mm-hmm. Which is really just to become the, the soul. next human. You know, the, just... The soul. Yeah, just what nature is trying to help us become. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm taking it slowly here because... Um, because I'm crying, because when you told uh, that uh, story of seeing uh, immense suffering, I uh, I started to uh, I started to cry, and I I was wondering what the function of grief is. Yeah. Yeah. not an expert on any of these things, so my opinion is worth only what the next person's opinion is worth. But if, if we imagine a world without grief, wouldn't that be terrible? I mean, if there were not, if we had no capacity to grieve, oh. it would, so some grief in some ways keeps us whole. It, it gives us some type of return to wholeness under extreme circumstance of loss. And I feel it's it's part of uh, what uh, creates the capacity to experience some of that uh, diamond love. Mm-hmm. It's it's part of it. It's in that experience as well. It's mm-hmm. maybe it's grief is composting. Mm. Is a composting element for mm-hmm. for the I'm soul. Sure. Coming to terms. Coming to terms. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so I love that you say that uh, the goal is not to escape, but the goal is greater presence. So I yeah. was wondering what these uh, young people or these people in your class recently, uh, how they, how they showed their presence. Yeah. Well, you know, C. 
CIIS is a special place. Uh, it's, it's at the very edge of its disciplines. It's a very forward-thinking uh, graduate institute and it therefore attracts people who uh, are similarly kind of very progressive in their thinking, who are looking and who have been looking very hard at our global situation right. and through one way or another. So it's a, it was an unusually rich uh, collection of individuals that gathered uh, there. And that's what I love about teaching there is because the students there are kind of so informed at so many levels, so many social levels. And I, boy, just being with these young people, and by young, I'm, these are people in their mostly 20s and 30s. Um, some older, mostly 20s and 30s, and being around them gave me such feelings of uh, hope and encouragement and optimism because of their clarity and because of the strength of their dedication and commitment. They're making a difference without necessarily knowing yet how they're going to do it, but their commitment is so strong, and they know they're on the front line of history in the middle of this transformation, and they, they live their life, you know, meaningfully in that position in history. It just was very encouraging to see what they were doing. And they're making beauty, among other things, <laughs> making music and making art. You know, yes. It's about liberating themselves uh, along with, you know, helping humanity find its way forward into a different, different future. I'm feeling, uh, meeting a lot of the younger generation who are really present for their role in, uh, yeah. in history. Are they extraordinary? I believe it. I think it's, it's amazing. And I feel really grateful to have uh, been a drop in the ocean that uh, helped, mm -hmm. bring this, helped bring this consciousness about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, I want to ask you about the ancestors and mm -hmm. uh, what you could tell us about your field of consciousness with the ancestors. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience in that particular area. I don't know why. Uh, I've been open to it. it. It just hasn't been figural. And it may be because of the type of medicine I used and the levels I was using. I think other medicines like ayahuasca and maybe psilocybin, but certainly ibogaine, uh, which has these other medicines might tilt you more towards that level of reality where the ancestors uh, are real, are, are, you know, that's part of the reality. It just hasn't been a large part of my world. Uh, I've uncovered, I've always been more interested in uh, karmic ancestry than physical ancestry. Hmm. You know, kind of it's the people I have karmic connection to more than biological connection to. Uh, but of course, those are intertwined, I think. Uh, but I don't have a lot of experience with the ancestor realm. 
I, I like what you said about those things being intertwined and mm-hmm. and how uh, we can sense the story with I've I've been looking at my ancestors and they have been looking at me very much in the last yeah. couple of years. Uh, and I feel a very, very strong thread and a very, very beautiful enthusiasm from the ancestors for this for this ongoing creativity that you speak about. Mm-hmm. That once mm-hmm. the once the the screen of a particular lifetime has been removed, uh, the ancestors yeah. are just completely overflowing with enthusiasm yeah. for the creative aspect yeah. of our birthing. Yeah. Think, yeah. It, yeah. Once the, once the, sh- the screen is dropped away, then all sorts of, of contact emerges as possible. Once that private self screen falls away. Yeah. 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 So tell us about, if you wish, your your new book. Uh, yeah, I'm writing. The, I'm in the early stages of trying to get it down, and it's uh-huh. it's uh, it's been a workout because uh, it's called stealing diamonds from heaven. I love that. Uh, and I just, you know, I figured in some ways start at the end, stealing diamonds from heaven. If I had to summarize what all that work was about, or is it's really, I feel so blessed because of the, you know, the older we get, the clearer it is that our life is a tissue of memories. You know, our life, our consciousness is the experience, the memories of the experiences we've had. Yes. Uh, and the center core. And what the older I get, when I look back and think about my life, there are days that stand out, you know, the birth of my children and great moments in the life, but there are these 73 days that, for me, were spent uh, in sometimes in the depths of hell and sometimes in the great in the arms of the divine. And uh, so I feel like I've overall have been stealing diamonds from heaven, and I, I feel very blessed. Now, heaven doesn't give up its diamonds easily, right? Easily. And so there's a price to pay. And I've I've been willing to pay that price, and uh, and I, I find the universe more than amply rewards any any uh, any price we're asked to pay along the way. Uh, so, stealing diamonds from heaven is basically just trying to tell the story of what happened on these seventy three days. Uh, between 1979, when I first began my career, I just began my career as a professor of religious studies, and 1999, when I stopped. Uh, So the challenging part of it, I find, is that you simply can't tell the experiences or share the experiences because the experiences themselves are so... Radical. They're so not acceptable within ordinary time-space reality that if you just if you don't explain to people the possibilities of experience, then they'll never be able to understand the experience that you're offering. 
So you, you kind of have to invite people. If, if your work, well, I, I like this book not just to speak to the consciousness community, mm-hmm. and that would be easier, but yes. to also speak to lay people, to people who are not part of the psychedelic community or not wouldn't consider themselves part of the consciousness community, but who are open and want to investigate these things. Right. So, so I'm trying to tell a journey. The boundaries of that journey go beyond conventional reality. And uh, that's that's challenging to do and still keep it, you know, <laughs> short enough uh, to be a book. But it's fun. Uh, I'm, I'm having fun. It's enjoyable to do. Uh, and I really hope that when everything is said and done, uh, I'm able to get myself out of the way and help just let people see what I've seen. Uh, because I think what I've seen may be helpful and relevant to the life as to what they've seen and the life that they're living. And so just trying to be supportive of our larger collective endeavor. And um, maybe it's not necessary to have psychedelic experience to, um, to, to sense true heaven. I mean, I had a very right. powerful experience during a massage. Yes. Um, I've had gotten letters from so many people who have said, I know what you're talking about. I've, I've had these experiences, but I've never done psychedelics at all. Beautiful. Psychedelics, That's great. It's, yeah, it's, it's, just an, it's just a trigger. It's just yeah. context. But those capacities are innate within human consciousness. That you don't have to be uh, dying dead, and mm-hmm. you don't have to take psychedelics to um, to have these experiences. Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And unusual circumstances some just evoke these experiences in our life, uh, and some people just have unusually natural access. Uh, I'm not one of those people. I kind of have to pound on the wall a lot and beat on the doors until they let me in. Yeah, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Except under the right conditions of massage. Yeah. Um, One of the other things I find challenging is, you know, is is the method. There's a specific method when you work with psychedelics in this way, and it's not tripping. And a lot of our whole experience or thinking about psychedelics has to do with tripping and, and going to concerts or going out in nature. Right. You know, and this is a, a very different strategy in working with psychedelics. It's, it's a very internally focused and, and consciously intensified through the skillful use of silence and isolation and music. Right, right. Um, and the other, then one of the other things I found... I when I first started this project is that I, uh, you know, I, I realized that a, a real a message that I had, and I wasn't trying to be coy or cute at all, but one of the real messages is I don't recommend that people do this the way I did it. There are lots of ways to cross these boundaries and to go into these territories. There are lots of ways of using psychedelics to enter into these domains. And I think now with hindsight, 
I think that the way I went into it was unusually intense and not necessarily maybe even the best for me in the long yes, run. Yes, yes. Uh, so, it, I mean, at the end, I, I found myself kind of asking the question as I think about these things, is it possible to have too much God? Yeah. Is it, is it possible to have too deep an experience of the universe and still, you know? So I, I want to recommend moderate, more moderation. And I, given what I know now, that's what I would do if I were doing it again. But this, I only have one story to tell, which is the story of what actually happened. So I try to, to separate the, my recommendation of moderation from telling a story which in many ways is not moderate, which represents kind of a sustained, high-dose, very intense regimen, which there's a certain wear and tear uh, to wear and work tear. a regimen that intensely. Yes. And I don't want other people to go through some of that wear and tear, and they don't need to. So, it, you see, it's a, it's, it's a complicated story. It's not simply a story of, this is great, everybody should do it. You know, it's like, hmm. Well, yeah, but it, you've been able to keep uh, a very practical aspect to your life, uh, yeah. You were you. Uh, how did you do that? You were not yeah. uh, blown away into um, not being able to function. On the contrary. Well, I, it, I think being grounded is really important. I appreciated it more over time. Right. Um, my responsibilities in the world kept me grounded. Uh, my job kept me grounded. My marriage kept me grounded. My children kept me grounded. Uh, no matter where I was on Saturday, often Monday morning, I had to be back in the classroom. So mm-hmm. I had to congeal myself. I had I couldn't go places if I couldn't come back fast enough to meet my responsibilities. And so you learn, you know, you, you practice it, and you learn, uh, you know, how to consolidate efficiently. Uh, and being grounded and working in the world gives your system time to assimilate and absorb these powerful experiences. I think the worst thing we can do is chase experiences just to kind of yes. go back into it again and again. It, it, it takes, I mean, I was only doing this four, five, six times a year for a long period of time, and, and that's not a lot by a lot of people's experiences. Mm-hmm. But it was so intense and so extreme that it was plenty for me. That's a very interesting question. Can we can we have too much of the divine? Yeah, I think maybe we'll stop here. Okay, (laughs) I'd love a lot of people to uh, who have had that experience to respond to that question. That's a that's quite an extraordinary question. So, Chris, thank you with all my heart for being with us. And as as I usually do, I, I want to ask you what you'd like to say in closing. Well, Joanna, first, thank you very much for this conversation with you and with your listeners. Uh, I value our conversations very much. 
separating thought. Uh, give me just a minute. Okay. You know, one of the ways I keep myself grounded is by writing. And one of the purposes in writing this book is to ground and integrate all these different experiences into a coherent story and to share that story. Um, and I hope my story nourishes your listeners as deeply as I have been nourished by sharing other people's stories that they've shared with me. And I hope we all share our stories with each other. That's how we're going to get through this process. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Chris. And um, I'm sure we'll uh, have the pleasure of being together sometime again soon. 